0: Chapter Review show. It's a chapter Review show. Chapter preview show. It's a chapter Review
1: show. Join us as we cover many an insane movie and numerous cult TV phenomenons. Are you ready to get jacked up? Are you
2: with
0: us? Then listen on.
3: to the show, everyone, and ladies and gents. So we got podcaster Matthew Simpson on here. How are you, sir?
1: I'm well, thank you. How are you?
3: Ah, I've never been bad. No so. <laughs> <laughs> one often says, never been better. I've never been bad. I've had
1: it good. Well, <laughs> no, it's uh, a, a blessed a blessed life. I'm, I'm jealous.
3: <sighs> oh, So, let me you are one of three contributors on here just talking about the Star Trek reboot so I just decided all this year we're doing covering the whole Star Trek franchise. Where do you rank here as a uh, fan of that franchise? Like you just say just you're a casual fan, big time fan?
1: <laughs> uh, I am a lifelong Star Trek fan.
3: Okay perfect. You
1: know, you know, if you if you go on social media, there's lots of people who post about, like, Star Wars and Marvel, and not enough who post about Star Trek. And I, I, I am the Star Trek. I want to be a Star Trek person. <laughs> uh, I've been watching Star Trek since I was – since I can remember, which is a longer time than I'd like to admit. And I have a Star Trek tattoo. And, nice. <laughs> uh, and I've seen every, every episode of every show – except for, I guess, Discovery at this point, because it's currently airing. Uh, but I've seen every episode of every show, except for Discovery, at least twice at this point. Sure, for sure. Not, uh, not to mention all the movies, which I've seen a uh, 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 probably uncountable number of times.
0: Perfect.
3: Yeah, we're, we're covering uh, the, ver- the reboot movies, which currently are at free and has, in the last two years, been announced for a fourth one. Which was supposedly by Tarantino, but they passed on that so <laughs> uh-huh. so we we've already covered in short essence the fan films that happened between the cancellation of Enterprise and you know the beginning of these reboot movies. Uh-huh. It was just really interesting how basically both you know Viacom's Paramount and the fans are at odds with each other
1: yeah it's. Uh... It's a weird situation in that they like they encourage fan films, but not can't make money on them, which I guess makes sense from a business point of view. But also, well,
3: it was dumb because they they followed the rules and they still got sued anyway.
1: Yeah, so I think it was
3: just because of that contrarian stance. Is like, okay, well, first off, Les Moomies was already a terrible guy anyway, like before his scandal. So I wasn't surprised that he was. Being an impossible to work with presence with the Paramount thing. At the same yeah. time, I mean, I respect the fans because they're not going out of their way to just be dicks. They're not like you know toxic fandom like you see nowadays with Star Wars or Halloween, where everyone just seems to want to just go on endless rants on social media, you know. And it doesn't change anything. Like track guys, they they can pretty much state their opinion for the most part without being a jerk and. And I think the other thing is they just loved it more than, like, maybe the people they kept trying to get involved with this. And I think what's also unusual is there are plenty of people involved with the franchise or who are fans who have liked it all. And then there's others who's just like, you know, I cut it off by that point. So I think with this one, you know, first, you got the first movie and it's basically... A Star Wars homage or knockoff, you know. Captain Kirk is a fan, is a farm boy, you know, like Luke Skywalker, and he blows up a giant space station.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, Star Trek two thousand nine is an, is an interesting beast to me because it is first and foremost a JJ Abrams movie, which is sounds like a complaint. It's not exactly, but what I mean to imply is that it uh, it lacks a certain depth. Yeah. J.J. Abrams is seems very interested in characters that come into places of power, but without actually struggling to get to those places, which I think is actually interestingly reflected in both 2009 Star Trek and Force Awakens. (laughs) So, oh man, um, yeah. uh, And he's not—he's really likes asking questions, but not really answering them. That's a whole other podcast. So.
3: Yeah, because I mean, the second film here, Into Darkness, basically just is a Khan it's it's weird to say it's like it's both a homage and kind of a knockoff because it's like, all it does is just like, do another spaceship takeover and then uh, reverse who actually sacrifices themselves and then resurrects that character. So it's just like, I don't know really what they wanted to do. Other than that, they're clearly be huge fans. But
1: I mean, the thing about Into Darkness is that the fact that Benedict Cumberbatch is playing Khan has absolutely nothing to do with the rest of the movie. It's only in there because someone wanted Khan to be like. It would actually be a much more interesting movie if he just stayed John Harrison all the whole time.
3: If he was just in general just an outer space terrorist instead of. Oh, by the way, I've been hiding it from you. I am Khan, and.
1: Yeah, and it, like at no point does he—he he doesn't act like Khan from this original series or from the rest of Khan. He doesn't ever say his own full name. He—he, um, he, the in the first scene where he does finally say, "Oh, my name is Khan," like there's no context for that at all. No, with, with the other characters nothing. in this, no. there's there's no context for it for the other characters in the scene. It's only there so that people like you know in the like me in the audience will go, oh my god, it's gone. But it was so out of context and sort of poorly organized that I I sort of threw up my arms at that point. Uh, Into I remember I said
3: bullshit. I saw it twice in the theater. I'm like each time bullshit. <laughs> like,
1: yeah. And, and the only thing is, like there's the, rest so, of the action, There's so much potential in that movie to be to be. There's so many like interesting pieces, especially in the beginning of that movie, that that would would be so much more interesting to explore, and I just decided to do what well, we got to do, Kong. So, and it's just mm-hmm. bad. It's just bad. <laughs> yeah.
3: So, and then you know, the last one we had, Beyond. You know, I, I know many were kind of who either had a love-hate relationship with this new franchise, like, it was kind of wild how people who had never been trackies were checking out the classic stuff their parents and uncles had, you know, told them about for years, their friends had talked about, and then they see this new one beyond, and, it's like, the press release was, this is our answer to Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm like, well, why are you trying to be like Guardians of the Galaxy? I mean, that's a whole different, you know, ballpark.
1: <laughs> you know, honestly, though, I... So I never I never made that connection between the two i never it makes sense but i i love beyond i love star trek beyond a lot i have exactly Mm -hmm. one major complaint with it and that's the way that it ends (laughs) i i love the tone i love the the it's got a a nice level of humor it looks gorgeous it's not afraid to be colorful like it 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 feels the most star trekky to me,
3: really? Okay, interesting. So uh, again, I,
1: I, ex- except for that one thing about how uh, Edison dies at the end.
3: Oh, see, I don't even remember that. All I know is that yes, there's like references to key plot points. You got a bunch of robots attacking them, so it's kind of like a automated version of the Borg, and then they do the
1: generations-type uh, starship separation.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean, so I guess it t- so. Technically, I guess I have I have two complaints about Star Trek Beyond. One. <laughs> I don't think the Enterprise needs to be destroyed so frequently. Because <laughs> it's it's destroyed in several of the movies. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so at the end of the movie, and this movie came out in 2016, so I don't feel bad spoiling it. But at the end of the movie, the bad guy dies. Uh, but the way he dies is trying to... Um, complete his plan of like destroying uh, all life in this space. And good
3: time. luck remembering him. Like I did not know that was a Drizelba. I was just like uh, why do you make him so unrecognizable?
1: Well I mean uh, just because you know they, they wanted him to become more human through the movie so I get, I get that. Um, but the thing that bothers me is at the end of that it would be a, a more Star Trek story if at the end of the movie when they have their like philosophical confrontation right after they beat the crap out of one another. Where Kirk finally gets the other hand and says, "No, like we're made, we're not made weaker by, uh, we're not made weaker by our differences. We're made stronger by them. And if at that point Edison or Crawl or whatever you want to call him had like had a change of heart and sacrificed himself to stop his own plan, that would have been a more Star Trek ending than him being vented out into space and dying, which is what I, happens in the movie.
3: I guess the issue is this movie wants to be deep, but they hired the most, you know, the king of non-deep movies, you know, Justin Lin from Fast and Furious, so I was just like, what does it want to
1: be? <laughs> oh, I, but again, like, I'm fine, I'm like, it's it's except for that one fumble at the end, I'm basically fine with it. Like, uh, mm-hmm. I, I, and all the, like, ridiculous action stuff in the middle, like, that's all fine. I'm fine with all of it. Like I, I really enjoy the motorcycle bit in the middle. <laughs> I really enjoy the like jumping, spinning beam out sequence at the end of that too. I think it's really, really funny. The only, I think it's really interesting to pair off Bones and Spock for so long uh, because you know so often it's Kirk and Bones or Kirk and Spock, and you don't. There's not that many where it's Bones and Spock, so I think it's a really interesting dynamic. Um, but. Yeah, it's just it's just that one moment of the ending for me where it does it doesn't it feels very Star Trekky right up until that moment in a in a in a Star Trek TV series or in a better in a better Star Trek movie uh, Edison would have sacrificed himself to stop his own plan like he would have had he would have turned back to the light as it were but and I know that's kind of a cliche but also that's Star Trek so that's yeah.
3: all right well interesting so I. I really don't even know what they want to do with this by now, because it seems like they got, you know, Star Trek was always going to have different talents involved with it, but it's kind of interesting how all these talents either kind of wanted to do a homage, or kind of just go for mindless action. And so I was like, I knew off that point, this wasn't going to get all that deep. It was just going to just be pretty much just easygoing entertainment. And now it's like with this fourth one that's they're talking about uh, I don't even know that they know what they want to do with it now
0: <laughs> I'm even well, I surprised they...
3: Tarantino contributed to it but yeah you know he wants to be deep and also kind of do homages so I'm
0: just like okay
1: yeah I mean honestly I would I would love to see uh, a Tarantino uh, Star Trek movie he reportedly loves Star Trek so why wouldn't I want to see that um i think they've hired last time i actually heard they had still had noah holly i think on board to write and direct and he makes super weird tv so i'm sort of into that idea i you know and you said that you don't really know what they want these movies to be and i don't i don't necessarily need them to know what they want to be ahead of time exactly you know, the beautiful thing about Star Trek is that it's been running for so long and that it's, it's, it's done so many different things and they're all Star Trek. So if Holly wants to take it in a totally different direction or if Tarantino had taken it in a totally different direction, I, I think that would have been fine.
3: All right. Um, I guess, uh, what do you think are storylines that they could bring to life in some fashion that would kind of just make everyone happy?
1: uh uh, i might be a cynic but one thing i've noticed about modern or at least current fandoms is that they're never happy so i hope they just do whatever is artistically in their hearts (laughs) uh, i I hope they i hope that they i hope that they do something interesting i hope that they subvert some expectations i hope that they don't just remake a previous movie i don't really want to see the wrath of khan for the two, three, fourth, fifth time. Um, and, you know, if they, if they did choose, if there was, like, a particular episode of TV that they wanted to, that they loved or that they wanted to do an homage to, i hope they would kind of do what Wrath of Khan did, which was, like, do a direct sequel to an episode. I think that'd be far more interesting than many of the choices they've made over the past couple of movies, especially. All right, cool, cool like Star Trek fans love the franchise. That's one thing I really actually appreciate about Star Trek is that Star Trek fans tend to love Star Trek, as opposed to say, you know, there are definitely more toxic elements of say Star Wars fandom these days. You know, there's people who claim to love Star Wars who actually seem to kind of hate Star Wars. (laughs) And you don't really see that with, Star Trek. People
0: just and it's just
3: did, when it's taking up so many clickbait articles, it's like, all right, enough, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah
1: and and again, like the, the thing about Star Trek, it, I'll say again, it's 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 been running for so long, and it's been so many things that there's something there for everyone. And I just, you know, I'm just happy when people show up in it. So, uh, you know, and you definitely have your like. Spur, you know, genre favorites at the moment, like Idris Elba in 2016. Um, but I just, I just want to see everyone in Star Trek. I would love to see someone like Florence Pugh in Star Trek. My honest, honestly, my, my biggest, my, uh, my biggest thing that I would like to see in the next Star Trek movie is for them not to abandon Jayla as a character. You know, she, Basically, became part of a crew and part of the crew in Beyond, and she's going to Starfleet okay. Academy at the end of Beyond. And I would like to see some character. Okay, so, who was that? that. Oh shit! What is her name? I'm talking
3: about Sophia Boutella's character. So, there you go. I didn't even yeah, know yeah. that was the actress, and I didn't even know remember who that character was. so There
0: you go.
1: <laughs> yeah, just like Star Trek has a, a sort of a history, <laughs> uh, a minor history of like introducing a supporting character and then that character never showing up again, at least in the movies. Uh, and they did it twice in a row. They did it with um, Alice Eve as Carol Marcus in Into, Into Darkness. And they did it, and I hope they don't <laughs> do it with Sophia Butella in, in Beyond.
3: So, where can we find you on the web?
1: <laughs> uh, you can find me mostly at awesomefriday.ca. Uh, and the Awesome Friday movie podcast is available on basically every podcasting platform that there is.
3: Welcome, welcome back, ladies and gents. So here I am with Track on Tolls, Matthew Kaplowitz. How are you, sir?
4: I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on the show today.
3: Anytime. So decided to just kind of have an all-star just get together on the ups and downs of the reboot version of the Star Trek franchise. Set in the Kelvin alternate timeline, it was a success with audiences and half and half with critics and diehard fans. Um, this uh, tr- is currently a trilogy and it is that ran from 2009 to 2016 and is set to have a fourth installment. The fourth installment has been in Development Hell and has a few different various names being attached to it from the director of WandaVision currently and previously having a script submitted by Quentin Tarantino of all people. And so, uh, just to start off like I do with every guest, since it just makes for a better conversation when we're talking about like a deep, just non-stop franchise that's much like the Twilight Zone has a different audience every era. Uh, uh Matt, what was your introduction to just deciding you were going to make time for this franchise?
4: I grew up uh, watching TNG. That was my first Star Trek. And a lot of folks, you know, they go back to the classic times of TOS, but uh, I was you know, pretty young when TNG came out, so that was my very first Trek. Uh, I can actually remember even getting one Christmas the Galoob TNG action figures, which are terrible, but I still love them to this day.
3: Uh, <laughs> I know so, exactly which.
4: you <laughs> You know, yeah, you know exactly the figures, yeah. Um, so uh, that's, that's kind of how my fandom began with it. Uh, and to be quite honest, I, I kind of tapped out not too long after that, unfortunately. Uh, like, I didn't really watch a ton of DS9 when it first aired. I watched very little Voyager and really no Enterprise because I just really wasn't into it at that point. Uh, I basically kind of got out of Star Trek fandom, which is interesting now to be revisiting these Abrams movies because uh, I basically haven't seen any of them except for the first one, really. Uh, I hadn't really watched them since they first came out. So, uh, you know, doing this episode with you today, it's been kind of fun going back and watching all that stuff because I, I will catch parts of like the 2009 movie on, but again, this episode has been the first time I've actually kind of rewatched all of them, especially two and three since then. But um, to kind of get back to your question, i kind of got back into the fandom in a more serious way uh probably around like 2015 or 20 I can, now i can't remember the year because i know i talked about it in my very first podcast episode but uh, it was basically a new York comic-con where i kind of saw a bunch of the star trek toys and i was like i remember these and i bought a whole bunch of them for super cheap and that kind of like launched me back into being a more serious trek fan so um, stole you know, again, baby <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> so that's why i'm also more excited to talk about this because not just was it my first time reviewing into darkness and beyond since they first came out but it's also me now being a more serious Star Trek fan and recognizing a lot of things I didn't catch the first time around.
3: That's so true. Uh, I had uh, Keith M. Seder of the Traxbirds Roundtable who had also worked on some of the various, you know, Axanar fan film and related projects. And he he would also talk about how he, knew, he noticed a lot of people who, it was kind of like a Mission Impossible kind of thing, where it's like he saw people who were familiar with the new movies who actually, you know, Around that same time, when that came out, you know, Netflix and Prime and Hulu made all the Star Trek franchise available, you know, on all platforms. You know, years before Discovery came out, you know, just the main five shows, and uh, he he knew people who's like, yeah, had those not come out, they would have not known. They just for whatever reason, they just didn't have know any relative in their family who knew about tracks. And I just, I'm with you. It was always it. in in my life in some capacity, I would always see part of one of the original series era movies. You know, I I saw all the movies at a pretty good time when I was getting into basically any special effects franchise. And so I always understood its legacy and just, I would always get even just mild references. Like there are, you know, there are four lights or, you know, there's, Oh, a red shirt just got killed. You know, it just, it it, there's, it's just unavoidable. There would always be just something to it. they were memes. Oh, absolutely. But before the internet, you could just do a screenshot and everything. Yeah. It's just like, just always just certain references and quotes and lines. Just You could tell if someone had actually just was, could just word everything word for word. Like if they were overacting in a cheesy B movie is like, hmm, maybe they've been studying William Shatner. You would see even just... uh, when there was just amusing debates or forums before it got very hostile to what it is today, uh, you there would always be at least one person who would do like a, you know, live long and prosper, you know, slogan, you know, and or talk like Spock and say, you know, how illogical. And I think when these movies came out, I would start seeing some people like pretend to have always liked track and other people is like, uh it was like never had any interest in track until then so then it was kind of interesting seeing some of those people come out of the woodwork and kind of even expose the whole classic uh classically bad star wars versus track debates and it's like seriously <laughs> i didn't even know that was still going on you know unless it's like a deep deep forum but yeah no i so the, these are definitely interesting in that uh, i would even see certain celebrities you know, with the franchise, you know, applaud it, you know, tip their hat saying you did a good job portraying my younger self. And then I saw other, you know, filmmakers say, I'm, you know, I didn't see the point of those, you know, <laughs> uh, but you can kind of tell it had made some kind of impact. Cause I mean, people would even look for all the Easter eggs in all three of these movies. Like basically there's one in the first movie here where they're claiming Archer from enterprise is now like the president or something. <laughs> uh in the last movie beyond there's like like in shot references to literally all the movies like a ship separating and everything you know like in generations and it's like yeah it's so it it is very complex in that there's like some ups and downs um but yeah we'll, we'll, we'll get into it so did you see any of these in the theater
4: i saw none of these in the theater I think the very first time I saw any of them would have probably been, I guess, Netflix. I don't think I rented these. I don't think I watched them with anybody. I'm pretty sure I just watched them on on Netflix. So, uh, you know, I wasn't really a big enough fan to even go into the theater. And to be fair, like, I'm not really the movie theater-going kind of person anyway. I kind of prefer to sit and watch it at home. Because I'm the dude that's like looking at it and overanalyzing things, and it's a lot easier to do that at home in the comfort of your own home and not in a theater surrounded by people. (laughs) So. Oh
3: yeah, you don't have anyone bringing their crying babies to the theater, and plus you can look at the subtitles, and if you have to take a restroom break, or if the movie is just not grabbing you, you waste 10 minutes of your time.
4: God bless the pause button. Yeah, the
3: pause button is king. Um, Yeah, no, uh, so... Yeah, when two thousand nine movie came out, it was kind of interesting how it's like this one. Basically, you know, before J.J. Abrams, you know, I was always ready, pretty much hit and miss on his earlier TV works. I I knew many who were obsessed with it, and others who would just basically come to work or come to college and basically just vent about a plot twist had driven them insane on whatever show he was producing or co-writing <laughs> it. And so this, I pretty much went in just lukewarm. It was like, let's just have fun. And I think the slogan that they had in the posters saying, this isn't your dad's Star Trek. I'm like, okay. So they're kind of doing the similar marketing campaign that they did with like the new Battlestar Galactica is like, when that came out, I hadn't seen, you know, any of the original show, but Edward James almost, famously did something saying you know anyone who expects this to be you know a cheese fest get out now and i think that just kind of you know he, he tricked everyone into checking it out and then they realized oh it's it's cool original new vision so you know that was some interesting uh how you backpaste yourself there uh, to give some free advertising and make everyone anticipate it and this one i guess it kind of did a similar one just saying hey we know it's not going to be the same kind of deal. And at the same time, like, I guess they weren't giving the finger to the purist, but at the same time they're saying, yeah, don't, don't expect this to be anything at all like this. So I go in, I see all these battles and then, yeah, I start thinking about After Effects. Like, yeah, typically there is kind of like a moral to the story. Like in most of these movies, like, what can one do to stop others' abuse of power and all that? And it's like, yeah, I didn't have anything. Like, I didn't remember the villain afterwards, and I had fun with the action. And then at the same time, was like, yeah, why is this so much like Star Wars? Oh, because in this one, Captain Kirk just a farm boy, just like Luke Skywalker, and he blows up a giant space station. So, <laughs> um, pretty much
4: was Abrams' audition tape for Star Wars. Let's let's be honest here. It's what it is. That's
3: essentially what it is, and. I saw people who I thought would have even hated it even speak so highly of this one, like Manny Koto, who was like the showrunner on enterprise and later worked on bigger shows like Dexter and 24. I was like, really? I would have thought most of you guys would have not liked this. Cause it's not deep.
0: <laughs>
4: but, well, uh, I grew up, uh, Not uh yeah, I wasn't in that time period where I was watching like TOS when it first came out, obviously I'm too young for that, but I did used to watch all the marathons. Like here in New York, uh we had a cha- uh, like channel called channel 11 wpix and that's what it showed all the reruns and on certain holidays they would do like big long marathons multi-day marathons of the original star <laughs> trek series so you know that's kind of like how i got my knowledge of the original series but uh going into the 2009 one i mean it was honestly kind of refreshing you know and again this is from someone at this point who is not really that deep into the star trek fandom but it was kind of refreshing that they were doing their own thing and they were right to say it's not your your dad's or even your grandparents star trek it was very different And, of course, that ruffled some feathers.
3: Right. Yeah, I pretty much... I wasn't to the point of, like, I was kind of briefly with Star Wars where I knew all the planets and types of spaceships. Although Star Wars, you know, you kind of had a cheating skill just because, like, there was always all these books and all these unnamed characters all had names. And it's like, track, you pretty much, you either knew everyone's
4: name or you didn't. That's where my fandom was at that point when, you know, like, in the... Mid to late 90s, early 2000s. I was in the Star Wars fandom, so I, I know all that stuff too.
3: Oh, <laughs> good. I mean, yeah. It, for every Tatooine, there's going to be someone. I mean, it was interesting seeing what people actually knew who Boba Fett's name was versus they only knew like the three main characters. And <laughs> it's interesting how many Stormtrooper jokes you can make, much to the equivalent of red shirts. Um, yeah. It's cool that there was still kind of marathons going in and out. There was always some channel who had access to older sci-fi shows and that always prospered because it was just a big paramount entity. So the way this plot hole all progresses in this first 2009 movie is basically, uh, you know, they show Captain Kirk's father, and then they show Pike, who was like the original captain for two episodes in the original track, being basically a mentor Is how they rewrite it in this alternate timeline. What was your take on any of the casting choices?
4: I didn't really have any problems with the cast. I think everybody did honestly a really amazing job. Uh, you know, it, the hardest thing about when you do a type of movie like this is that it's a reboot, so automatically you're going to be making comparisons to the original actors, all the original performers, and it's kind of unfair to the cast back then, uh, because You know, Chris Pine, I think, does a really great job. Zachary Kinto is pretty much a perfect Spock. And Carl Urban, like, highly underrated as a McCoy. I think his McCoy is probably the best thing out there. Um, Really, everybody was great. Uh, I think just, you know, really, really the main thing is the fact that just so many people immediately draw those parallels to, like, the original cast. And it's kind of unfair in a lot of ways because it also sets your expectations. It's like you're used to seeing William Shatner as Kirk, so you want Chris Pine to do his Captain Kirk impersonation. But you know, on the performer side of things, you don't just want to copy and imitate. Now, you know, granted Carl, Carl Urban did, like, an amazing job of really kind of replicating DeForest Kelly as McCoy, but he also did make it his own, so...
3: He was a big fan growing up and introducing it to his kids, but yeah, I mean, it's so true, because it's like if you want to accuse these of being a giant, big-budget fan films, go at it, but yeah, I, I, I can't fault any of the cast since they're not only having to imitate but try and become the character, and I think most of them were definitely successful. I mean, I was at Wonder Woman with a bunch of friends, and you know, when Chris Pine came on screen, they're like, "Hey, I didn't know Captain Kirk was in this." So, I do think there there are points to this to where, like, even though they didn't originate the role, like they're still associated with it. Um,
4: they very much rid- did their own things, and they and they kind of made themselves uh, their own iconic versions too. Uh, that's kind of my thoughts on that.
3: So, like we're even to the point where, like, when they got all the other offers coming in it's like uh they would uh, they would still kind of have that like be one of the first titles that showed up on their resume uh for a while it seemed like uh zoe saldana you know is like everyone was calling her Yehura. uh john cho he was kind of at the second stage of his career where you know he'd already been in every other comedy franchise mm-hmm. and here he is playing sulu and um now he's getting even more serious roles. And uh, I think I think this helped him kind of grow as an actor even more. Just like, you know, got to be heroic there. And so now he gets all the serious roles now. Um,
4: yeah, so that yeah. was a part he definitely needed to kind of break away from all the typecasting he was getting at that point.
3: Pretty much. And Carl Urban just needed this role because, I mean, he's just been so underrated in so many different movies. And, you know, he's been in Lord of the Rings, for goodness sake. And here he is finally... Able to be in a giant, a giant franchise, and he seems to just—I don't know—be very selective on what projects he does now, and he has that freedom, fortunately. Um, yeah, no, uh, uh Quinto especially is interesting because I mean, basically, just added the second best-known role to his <laughs> uh, list of credits, and. <laughs>
4: And he also got uh, to work side-by-side side with Leonard Nimoy, which, you know, really most of that cast can't really say they got to do. They didn't really get to interact much with their originals. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw a documentary that William Shatner did called The Captains. Have you seen that? Yes, yes I did. Okay, so for folks who haven't seen it, basically what he does is uh, William Shatner is interviewing all the Starfleet captains that did other shows. And uh, he actually does get to interview Chris Pine. So, I mean, Chris Pine had some interaction with Shatner, but otherwise, you know, really no one else gets to actually interact with their counterparts from the original series except for Zachary as Spock. So uh, it was pretty cool actually seeing them side by side and uh, sharing the screen together. That part was actually kind of nice and I know a lot of folks don't necessarily like that part of the film or just like having that throwback to Spock in that and I guess both films really but um, I I think it was fine. I think it kind of fit the story and seeing two Spocks work together side by side it's pretty cool because you can just see how good of a job that that Zachary did do in that role.
3: Yeah around that same time basically every other franchise was just kind of needing that extra bit of help and there was always that one actor who kind of kept everything running and so for me that was kind of just the equivalent of you know whoever spearheaded whatever franchise you know shows up to mentor the next of kin or whatever and uh, I mean it came out the same year as other franchises like Terminator Salvation I was like well you have Arnold but it's not really Arnold in there and For me, yeah, it was kind of like with same equivalent here where it's like, okay, so Spock is in here. He's he's the one connecting this whole thing, just showing how it's an alternate timeline because, and really that second part of the movie kind of just frozen in a totally different loop that kind of makes you just say, hey, you know, I I can turn my brain off now and just have a little fun because it's all just kind of a fun alternate timeline, uh, a mirror universe, if you will, you know?
4: I gotta tell you, like rewatching the films especially, uh, it's funny how much I can remember of them, and really, like the first film in particular, I actually remember really well like the first half of it. That part really stands out very vividly in my mind, and I think it's a really great first half of the film, even, I guess you could say, first two-thirds. Uh, to me, the movie kind of starts to lose a little bit of its luster once we actually do get to meet Spock, as important as it is and as cool as it was. Uh, to me, that's always been the point where it's like, the movie kind of, I, I start to lose a little bit of interest because... Now we're kind of rushing to the third act and the third act is not the best.
3: I I concur because the main issue is uh, I don't know if you go by this rule book. Would you say a movie is only as good as its villain?
4: I think in some cases, but um, There's plenty
3: of cases where we don't care and we're like, okay, the character's strong enough and we're cool with them dispatching various masked villains. But yeah, with this one, it's just like you look at all the deleted scenes and I still, to this day, do not understand why they decided to delete the villain's backstory.
4: I think because it's actually not important because the movie isn't really about the villain. I think that's something a lot of people um, kind of miss about this film. And, you know, uh, *In Into Darkness did a little bit better for sure. They spent more time with the villain, but there's reasons for that. But, uh, you know, in my opinion, for the 2009 Abrams film, the villain's not important. The villain really is only a vehicle to move the plot forward. He serves no purpose. The movie is really about Kirk and Spock and their relationship and the beginning of that relationship, so you could have it doesn't really need a villain because the villain he's just kind of a plot point and that's kind of obviously how he's treated in the film but you know there didn't really need to be an exploration of him it's not like you know this is an Eric Killmonger from Black Panther like we don't need to get in depth backstory from him we just kind of need to know what his motive is why we don't like him why he's doing the bad thing I think we get more than enough about him. Um, but I do agree; he's completely forgettable. <laughs> and, uh, well, I think that's, that's like, my you problem. Know, when you're watching the film, like I said, I can remember easily the first like two thirds of the film until Spock shows up and we get to that last act because that last act is kind of not good. But I, uh, you know, I'm okay with with Nero being uh, as lame as he is ultimately.
3: <laughs> uh, I fair enough. I I guess my problem is it's kind of like when, whenever there's a weak heroine who's basically you know just serves as nothing as to be either a body shield or just, you know, be rescued. it just, when a plot, when a character becomes a plot device, it just really stands out like a sore thumb from, I can't speak today. It sticks out like a sore thumb to me. And so I just like, uh, you know, uh, I don't.
4: I and mean, I would kind I, of make a comparison to uh, Ghostbusters 2016. I don't know if your fans You want to hear me mention that, but I'm going to mention it. Um, so I, I would compare like the villain in that movie versus Nero in 2009 Star Trek. Uh, whereas you know like they're both pretty poorly developed <laughs> but one of them is far worse than the other and that would be the Ghostbusters 2016 villain because he had like really no purpose Uh so I, I feel like he's more what kind of what you're talking about I, I feel Nero oh hell I'll
3: give you the villains in the latest Rambo they're all oh, yes yeah. <laughs> yeah. cartel people and you just feel like they're just one giant walking stereotype as opposed and I get it it's an 80s movie so it wasn't going to be politically correct but at the same time I'm like I, I'm you know I don't need. It's kind of like with the Die Hard sequels. I don't need the next Hans Gruber. I just need someone who just has a cool plan, because you can't top Hans Gruber. So, if anything, just stand out. I mean, like I thought every season of 24, which Zachary Quinto was in. And fun fact, my brother once walked in when I was watching season three, and he's like, "That sounds like Spock." I'm like, "It is the guy who plays Spock later on." But yeah, uh, uh, all those villains in the strongest seasons, stand out because they got very diabolical plans and you want to see get inside their head eventually. Cause it's obviously not about just making a political stance or, you know, someone pay them a giant chunk of money, you know? So uh, I'm with you. The villain, I see why they're minimizing at the same time. I mean, just <laughs> I would have just liked more than just, you know, you know it's just i would rather just no scenes with him at all for that matter just like just go to the next wave of just non-stop you know villains and i will commend uh the music score uh, michael giancino's uh score i think is marvelous it pretty much score is stellar yeah and i think he does a good job on pretty much all these he's just he i I wasn't familiar with his TV work. Ironically, I had first come to knowing about him by playing call of duty. So I was just like, okay, <laughs> so he kind of does a mixture of kind of John Williams and Alan Silvestri kind of scores is how I'd liken it. There's always little touches where I'm like, okay, that's a Superman score. Okay. That's a predator kind of score. Okay, cool. I'm with it. Um, yeah, no, I mean, uh, so uh, how would you describe, I guess I'll, So, let's talk about the infamous lens flare.
4: (laughs) Uh, The lens flare, yes.
3: Uh, You can't not talk about it. So, I don't have sensitive eyes, and I kind of understood why they were doing it at first when they were, like, traveling, like, on the space shuttle. You know, Bones and uh, Kirk are going to Pike's ship. And then after a while, yes. After a while, especially on a rewatch, it was like, why is this flowing, you know, so much, you know? I... Everyone varies in what annoys them or what doesn't edit, uh, annoy them. I'm not annoyed by like shaky cam because I'm just used to like the camera shaking, especially on Star Trek, you know, when that's how they made it look like the ship was being bombarded in addition to the actors, you know, falling on the ground. But the every edit can go over the top in some cases. And there's plenty of times where someone seems to be just, you know, using a steady cam and just not – Stabilizing it fully and it just feels awkward, but yeah, the lens flare just seems like you know, as the filmmaker was quoted, it's like, uh, I it's the only thing I knew how to breathe life into the scene for. I'm like, for real, <laughs> that was I mean, the, the upside. Only one.
4: The upside is that there was a lot less lens flare in the second, and by the third, it was practically gone because they really weren't even on the ships that much. So that's what's
3: so wild. I would get into arguments with people who th- swore there was way more in the second one. I'm like, I think you're just uh, misinterpreting your disgust in the movie with there being more lens flare. I mean, there was even a video on YouTube that showed there was way more lens flare in the first one.
4: Yeah, there's no debate. I mean, I just watched them back to back. Anybody who says otherwise is a fool. That's all. Uh, they need to just go watch them again. <laughs> it's, it's pretty noticeable. There's no way around all that lens flare in the first film. It is it is obscene. But uh, it wasn't as distracting as I remembered it being now. Uh, like I remember when it first came out, I didn't like it either. But I, I feel like, you know, the visual language of the film, and, and don't get me wrong here, I'm not defending the lens flare, I don't think it's a great choice, but I guess the visual language of the film was that this isn't your dad's Star Trek, so the way they did that was by making things move constantly, and there's so much more tension and running around, uh, it's, it's a lot less calm than any of the previous Star Treks you've seen at that point, so one of their ways of injecting more energy into it would be that lens flare, as obnoxious and annoying as it was
3: just being frantic 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 and because it
4: really is i mean like like we said earlier it's basically jj abram's audition tape for star wars so star Mm -hmm. wars is is a world that's constantly running around and moving star trek is typically not even in the most tense scenarios i mean they're always usually pretty calm and level-headed even really when they shouldn't be but uh you know in this time around in nine's film like it's all about high octane action everything is moving there's people running around like how how rare is it that on a star trek show you see them running to the engine room or running to the bridge room like, no, they don't do that. They just calmly, politely walk over there and, yeah. But here in Abrams, I mean, they're running around. There's so much more fuel going on in this film, so mm-hmm. the lens flare is hideous, but I, I guess that's part of their reasoning for it. That, that's kind of my thoughts on, on why it even exists, really.
3: I guess so. I think he just basically, he just he went into just overdrive, no pun intended, uh, just
4: <laughs> went to
3: warp drive. Urgency.
0: yeah, Yeah,
3: this is a Star Trek show. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think we're all pretty much just like, just the cast had charisma and even just seeing their earlier roles. I mean, Zoe was used to being as part of an ensemble. She had a brief part in the early Pirates of the Caribbean. And again, Carl Urban was on Lord of the Rings and a bunch of other campy shows. So it's like uh, uh, everyone was used to being part of an ensemble. And I guess. I always used to kind of find Chekhov just kind of questionable, sometimes even annoying in some episodes. And I felt like Anton Yeltsin was like, I'm going to just, I'm, you know, Russian. So I'm going to just do my most over the top version of the Russian accent. And that's <laughs> summing up Chekhov.
4: <laughs> well, it's kind um, of interesting that you mentioned is like how a lot of these folks were doing ensemble parts. And that's kind of true of the original series too. I mean, if you really look at it, like Shatner at the time, he was a leading man. But uh, guys like Leonard Nimoy, like DeForest Kelly, they were usually more more character actors. Uh, same thing with Walter Koenig. George Takei, of course, mm-hmm. you know, being an Asian American in Hollywood in that time period, weren't going to get much to begin with. So a lot of these guys were coming from ensembles. They weren't really super well known yet. And Star Trek is kind of what helped propel their careers. And I think we could say uh, safely that you know, 2009's film, you already had some people who were established stars, but there were plenty of others who weren't. And this film really helped them get things moving along. Like we mentioned John Cho too. Like this kinda of helped change the trajectory of his career. Um I think I think we could say that about a lot of the people who appeared in this film.
0: Oh yeah, he
3: he's just fabulous and I mean it, just a total step up from being, you know, part of the duo of Harold and Kumar or just, you know, the perverted guy in American Pies franchise. So it's like, yeah, he here he had to actually be athletic and play around with like, you know, a samurai sword and <laughs> it's kind of the first time we really even see Sulu actually be in a more action-packed way, as opposed to, you know, in the movies, he's just the guy who, you know, you know, gets to fire the torpedoes. You know? <laughs> yeah.
4: I mean, at it's least you have to Captain t- the Excelsior in Star Trek Six.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. And then at that point he's yelling fire and, um, yeah, so seeing him on, yeah, uh, the movie that kind six of my
4: point though too how like all those star trek movies we're talking about some action sequences and they're still pretty quiet <laughs> comparatively speaking um and I, that really is like the biggest thing that stands out to me about all the new star trek films and especially 2009 is just how much more stuff is constantly happening and buzzing around on the screen
3: yeah no shortage of it it's interesting how some people likened it to being a Spielberg approach and others you know criticized it saying it felt more like a Roland Emmerich or Michael Bay kind of mindless fest so it's just like it's that weird gap where somehow this movie has elements of all those filmmakers and yet was for the most part a, a mix to better you know highly applauded effort and yet here we are talking about it now and there's stuff in it that still hasn't aged well and yet it's kind of still pretty watchable out of the out of all of these three so it, it is an odd case to make when it's just like there's some good and yet there's some stuff not so good so where do where do we rank it you know
4: i mean i can tell you from my part the 2009 film is an easy watch honestly like it's it's a summer popcorn flick that's what it was meant to be that's kind of how i view it Uh, it's always easy watching i can turn it on see it on tv and it's just like it's easy just jump at any point and just get into it um and i don't know if we want to start ranking things too early on in this episode here but like i it's hard to say which one I like more, honestly, because I actually really like Star Trek Into Darkness. I'm surprised how much I like it. I mean, uh, but on the, other hand, on the other hand, I know a lot of folks who love Star Trek Beyond, and I found that one to be the worst. And, like, I, I just don't oh, like yeah. that one really that much at all. <laughs> not oh, as don't. bad as I first remember it, but I'm really not a fan of that one, as, just even as a movie. But uh, Star oh, yeah. Trek Into Darkness, I'm... good good film, and Tales of Nine, it's pretty darn good.
3: Totally with you. So I guess we're both in agreement. You know, Watchable, three out of five. It may not be. An actual Star Trek film, but it is, like you say, watchable popcorn. Well,
4: that's kind of the thing is I, I feel like this also began the conversation of what is Star Trek, and we were already getting those conversations uh, earlier, really, to be honest. Um, you know, when, when Star Trek TNG first came out, there was loads of complaints about that. The fans had rebelled on it before the first episode even aired. Mm-hmm. Um, when when DS9 came out, it was the same thing. There was all sorts of stuff. There was all the political talk about it. Same thing with Voyager. Pretty uh, much anytime there's anything new Star Trek, there's just like one old guard of fans who don't want it to change. And 2009 and all the Abrams Trek movies, they just completely flipped the franchise on its head. And I, I don't think any franchise is a monolith. That's my controversial opinion. I don't think any franchise is a monolith or should be a monolith. They should all have their own voice and stand up on their own. And that's yeah. what I think 2009 did and kind of led the way for what's going on now. Whether you like it or not is a story for another episode, maybe. But
3: No, no, um, that's a, that, that is a good segue. Because it's like, prior to this... Uh, I I did see a lot of filmmakers and even producers note like this opened the way to doing reboots because for a while it was just the remake machine and then you know Batman Begins comes out so then every superhero movie not only wants to be like it but then even just in general like everyone was like we got to do a similar kind of gritty style to kind of Christopher Nolan that he does in all his mystery movies so it was kind of interesting how yeah this one was like the next phase where just you know The Sleeping came out the same year as uh, District 9, and I saw a lot of people kind of trying to imitate that. It's like, do a movie that's heavily inspired by, like, earlier 80s and 90s blockbusters like Terminator and Blade Runner or Aliens, and then kind of just find your own voice using that similar visual medium in advertising.
4: (laughs) That's kind of what you have to do. I think, like, you can take inspiration from the older stuff, and you should take it and respect it and treat it accordingly, but you also still need to modernize things, like... Uh, I hear people all the time talk about how, like, Orville is the best Star Trek out there right now. <laughs> and I I really disagree with that statement. Um, I have not finished the Orville still. I'll be full disclosure here. I, I've been watching it here and there. I don't really like it. I'm just kind of watching it to see how it goes. And I've had to watch it for research for uh, certain episodes of my podcast because I had guests on who appeared in it.
0: Mm-hmm. But,
4: uh, you know, like, to me, the Orville is, like, 90s Star Trek kind of just rehashed but with Seth MacFarlane jokes, which usually don't land for me. Uh, not as much as they used to. <laughs> so... Yeah, I'm kind of happy bringing things into the modern world a little bit, as much yeah. as other fans. They still want it to be, you know, 1990 Star Trek, but we're we're not in the 90s anymore, and things have changed, the world has changed, obviously visual effects has changed, acting theory has changed. Like, so much has evolved, you know, like, you're not gonna get the same movies you got back then, uh, you know, there's all these people who will say, you know, movies kind of peaked in the 70s, and that's when, really, I think acting kind of changed in a lot of ways, too, but... You know, it's always every, it's a generational kind of thing. I guess it's kind of what I'm getting at here is it's a generational thing. No one's going to ever be happy. Oh, totally. They always want it to be their memories of the thing. But I I think um, and, and you know to kind of bring it back to Star Trek, when I first saw the films in nine, I remember comparing them a lot to the original series and just being really kind of obsessed with that. Even though my knowledge of it wasn't even that necessarily great, but I was like, well, well you know, Kirk was his version of Kirk was okay, I guess. But watching it today now again, I I don't really care as much. I guess how how quote unquote Star Trekky it is. I like what they did with it. I like that they took a risk. And I think in the case of the Abrams films, I think they worked for the most part.
3: Yeah, no that, that that is, that's so true. Cause like, this is kind of the equivalent of, uh, basically like when there's a book adaptation of a movie, like, you know, in the nineties, Michael Crichton was hot, you know, and then there was like James Patterson was tempted at a few different times before then it basically went to just anyone who made the New York times bestseller list basically got a movie offer, uh, and so it's like, but almost every time, you know, it's not going to be at all like the book because, you know, when there's so many creative people involved, there's going to be a sacrifice that's going to be made. And I've even had to tell people before, especially on script to screen type exercises, it's like, uh, you know, a book chapter is going to take up like five to 10 pages that would read as just static or just uninteresting on a movie Visual medium. You know, you got to have all these various shots and stuff to choose from to keep the pace going. And
4: yeah, no, I mean, and that's basic- why they call it adaptation, right? It's not like, you know, it's going to be not going to be a word for word, verbatim kind of thing. It's an adaptation of something that's out there.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And really, the only time it's compromised is when it just feels like no one had any vision at all and they just did like a copy and paste. And it's just somehow still tone deaf, even though it's trying to stay true to whatever authors intent and i think yeah pretty much they just all these fanboys who were bigger fans of m- movies but more star wars people basically just said let's just do whatever we want to do and uh yeah it, it's can be enjoyed as just a standalone sci-fi versus you know whatever you want it to be
4: and so for sure it's kind of what star trek did too because i remember at the time a lot of folks you actually said this earlier how um you know, a lot of folks were, were coming out of their, their Star Trek fandom, if you will. So folks who weren't necessarily into Star Trek before, because it was maybe too nerdy, or even too intellectual, perhaps, in some levels, they just didn't like it as much as Star Wars, whatever the reasons were, uh, the 2009 film got them interested in Star Trek again. And it, it did very much revive the entire franchise, not just the 2009 version of it.
3: Yeah, because I mean, even before I found out just kind of killed a lot of the creativity in the room. It's just like, Uh, I would see some people say, oh, give the franchise back to Rick Berman. I'm like, guys, he's not even a writer. He's just the guy who, you know, funded the whole, oh, lost you there for a minute. Can you hear me now? Yep, I'm back. Okay, yeah, I don't know what happened, but uh, yeah, no, it was basically, you know, Rick Berman was just the guy who just, you know, would pitch the shows and assign who was going to be the lead writer and everything, and I think his issue was he oversaturated the franchise because he didn't want to, you know, lose the rights to it, but that kind of worked against it because then, you know, the DS9 and Voyager guys had to work extra harder to stand out, you know?
4: Very much so. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of how I guess it should be though. Like you know, all the shows should kind of stand out on their own and that's what they kind of did. They had to do that. Um, like I said, no franchise should be a monolith. So while Star Trek TNG is one thing, DS9 was a completely different thing as well. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, that's probably my favorite of all the series. But Any you original do sci-fi difference.
3: show often would struggle to differentiate itself from being called a Star Trek or even an X-Files knockoff, like Babylon 5 had that issue for season.
4: <laughs> yeah, that's what happens when shows are trying to find their legs. I mean, that's, that's they're trying to find their way to stand out. They need to figure out that language for themselves. And ultimately, they either get there or they don't, and they fail. <laughs> but right. if they do take the risks and they make it work, then they become a, they become a success.
3: Essentially. And uh, so, yeah, how about we move on to uh, Into Darkness? Um, so, basically, this is a Wrath of Khan rehash, but in an alternate timeline. And you go to the whole movie saying, hmm, maybe this guy is or isn't Khan. But I don't know why it was really a mystery when they kind of revealed it in the trailers. <laughs> 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 oh, you they, know, you know,
0: for a
4: while, they didn't. For a while, it, it was a mystery in those trailers. And I remember, like, hoping and praying it was going to be someone different, because, I mean, really, we knew it was going to be Khan. But I was like, what if... What if it was an evil mirror version of, like, Picard? How cool would that Ooh, have been?
3: Oh, yeah, it would have been way better. Or even just, I don't know, just some, you know, super smart terrorist. And basically, yeah, Benedict Cumberbatch, I think the main issue is that everyone's like, yeah, he's not Latino. And Khan was kind of Latino. But I think the other thing, issue is Star Trek was never really wrote what race each of its characters was, you know, it just always... Well,
4: Khan was, actually. Khan was supposed to be Indian.
3: Okay, so there you go. His full name
4: was Khan Noonien Singh, so he was always meant to be an Indian, but he was played by Ricardo Montalban, who is Hispanic. Oh,
3: so... Some pretty confusing...
4: (laughs) I mean, it was the 60s, and back then, you were going to be hard-pressed to actually find authentic people of that color uh, on screen doing that kind of a role. I mean, uh, we're not that many years apart at this point. If we're going back to original Star Trek, and I mean, Ricardo Montalban is Khan, we're we're only a few years away from the Kung Fu series casting David Carradine and completely forgetting that Bruce Lee existed, so mm-hmm. that was kind of just unfortunately the times.
3: The times, baby, they did not age well, and
4: they
0: yeah, and that's why they the kind other. of
4: changed Khan completely in uh, Star Trek Into Darkness, and they kind of kill any any part of him that might be Indian whatsoever, and just turn him completely into uh, you know Anglo-Saxon.
3: <laughs> Pretty much, it's kind of wild how in this one. I mean they talked about con's people and enterprise and their origin and with this one it was kind of more he's got all these like clones and other hybrids that are like frozen <laughs> they got they're just got they keep the whole supernatural strength element but pretty much the most tired part i mean i've seen been at Cumberbatch doing impersonations of Alan Rickman in interviews, so I wasn't really surprised that when he, it's basically what he does here, he's a street
4: voice, you know? Like, I, I enjoyed him, but uh, he's definitely kind of weak here, and it's not really his fault of his own, it's more just what he has to work with, and I think he made, like, the best out of what he had, for sure. Yeah, he's like really God the highlight was...
3: for me, because I... basically, like you say, it, it, it's just a trashy role, and he's yeah. just hamming it up.
4: Like, he had, he had stuff to say. It's just, you know, wasn't really the greatest stuff to say, unfortunately. And, and Khan, it was kind of an interesting role because I think we're, you, know, you alluded to Batman earlier and like, the reboot of Batman with Chris Nolan. Uh, I, I don't remember the year that Into Darkness came out, but I'm trying to remember, like, how close it was. 13.
3: I <laughs> saw it twice in the theater, and it was one of those... kind of the same kind of deal every time. Just couldn't take my eyes off the screen because of the action, and yet each time I would kind of just also roll my eyes at how... There was just so many unrelated segments that don't have anything to do with the main part of the plot, what little there is. Like, there's a, we start off with a a get away team mission that doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the movie. Then we got the scientists and utter intrigue that really you could have deleted and nothing would have changed. And then, and then a twist on the instead of Spock sacrifice himself, Kirk sacrifice, like tries to sacrifice himself save spock and it's like it's just so weird <laughs> yeah, I feel like i'm about to
4: piss off like all your listeners but I, that's actually um, the way you, you describe it it's kind of how i felt when i first saw it when it first came out and then rewatching it now uh, i was like oh okay like yeah the opening gambit is is that it's just that's what it is it's just kind of get you to hook yourself into the watching the film whatever um but i was like actually impressed how much the movie set up everything this time around and granted it's like a little clunky at times um, like, I remember when I first watched it, uh, you know, spoiler alert, uh, you know, I the Tribbles are kind of an important thing in this film, and so is uh, the blood of um, Khan. And I didn't realize, like, they actually set up Khan's rejuvenating blood right from the beginning. It just never occurred to me because it happened so early on. I just didn't care, I guess, when the movie first came out. I wasn't that observant. But I, I feel like things were really set up better than I remembered, and that's a good thing. And, uh, again, I feel like while the movie is about Khan, and, you know, Khan is the villain or whatever, I think the story is still very much about Kirk and Spock's relationship, and Khan is just kind of a vehicle to push that together.
3: Oh, their seeds are definitely strong, especially when they're... uh, I'll I'll at least commend the movie for the going ship-to-ship in outer space and having to trust Khan against all, you know, logic.
4: Like, they're definitely developing the villain a lot more. They basically heard the complaints of the first film and said, alright, we got to make a well-rounded character here, and they did that, I think. Uh, and then you know, Peter while,
3: Weller is being villainous as a Starfleet guy. is like, wow, interesting. He's a traitor and then he's getting mauled to death because he's like supervised the con program in some capacity. <laughs>
4: like, it's actually kind of cool. You know, they brought up Section 31 uh, and how the augments came to be. So it's kind of cool. They're setting things up. They're making it more complicated. And like, what I was getting to was, you know, in terms of like what year it came out, was I'm trying to remember if this like overlapped when The Dark Knight came out because.
3: Yes, you know, exactly. Dark Knight had come out in 08, and basically, much like James Bond was kind of trying to have all its villains kind of be big bads like that, this was kind of doing that same thing. And yeah, Dark Knight exactly. Rises I mean, They are really going out. with
4: that, that high entry kind of route with Khan here, and it totally works. Again, it's not your typical Star Trek movie, but it's really good what they did here. And it's also really cool just how they continued to build the Kirk and Spock relationship, which we do kind of ignore a little bit, I think, in, in the third movie. But you know, they're really building on it, and they're building on the importance of Star Trek 2 and that relationship. That they had in the original Star Trek 2, I should say, to clarify that. um So they were doing that, but they were again flipping it out on its head, trying to do their own thing with the roots of, of Trectum. So mm-hmm. I give them credit for it. And I think it worked still. I still think it's really good. Like, I have a hard time discerning if I actually like Wrath of. Not Wrath of Count. If I actually like uh, Into Darkness more than 2009. I, I think I like 2009 more, but it's pretty close for me, which uh, I, I'm surprised. I definitely surprised
3: appreciate, to like you say, Well, like like you say the ideas and the buddy elements are strong it's just kind of all the in-between stuff that's pretty sloppy but yeah the action is very cool and i know many people argue about it more just because they hate the lens flare this time around i i pretty much just enjoy how kirk is getting back to the whole hand-to-hand fighting and uh spock is having to do more than just read off scientific lines and you know take out a phaser every five seconds um it's... And we also
4: we haven't mentioned yet the fact that Spock has a, a, a romantic relationship with Ahura. Like that's actually a pretty big thing too. Um, that he's actually doing that, and they're they're fleshing out the character of Spock much more than he ever really got fleshed out in, uh, in in the original series. And even like in the movies, he got his time to shine. I mean, he got killed, he got resurrected, and then he got had to basically figure his life out again. But um, it was more of like a plot device in a lot of ways here. Like he's actually building a character more so than just being a Vulcan. Like being the alien species is what he kind of was. Here in in the Abrams films, like he's an alien being, but they've also injected, I think, a lot more humanity into his character, and that makes him much more relatable too.
3: Yeah, they they definitely embrace the whole you know half human, half Vulcan way more this time around. I mean, it, when they first announced Picard and saying how, uh, you know, if Romulus was actually the planet was actually destroyed, I'm like, okay, so interesting how you're tying that all back in again they kind of downplayed it when it actually premiered. I was like, well, interesting. You, you got some of these same people associated with it. And I think some track fans were more hard on this just because they got into a pissing match with Roberto Orsi, who kind of told him to fuck off. And I was just like, <laughs> at the same time, I would have probably said the same similar thing. It would have been like, if you don't like it, don't watch it. But at the same time, I mean, it's just complicated because he's like, he's a fan. But yet, there are also fans complaining. So it's just like, they should have just, I don't know, someone should have figured out the HR and said, don't reply to this, you know, these comments until you're ready.
4: You know? I mean, for a lot of folks, Star Trek is a way of life. It's not just a fandom to enjoy. It is their life. Uh, I'm, I'm not really a Star Trek purist. I, I'm obviously a pretty huge Star Trek fan if I'm doing a podcast all about it but I'm not like one of the purists that's going to get like super picky over things. But yeah, if you got someone who's basically talking down to the fans, I mean, that that person's kind of a jerk. So yeah, forget that dude.
3: Yeah. And I think he kind of got dismissed after that. they are like, okay, after this, let's, you know, change up the writers. Alex Kurtzman, I notice, has been kind of fans have been complaining about him. He's always kind of been just kind of a, you know, take one for the team kind of guy. And, I gave him the benefit of the doubt when I read how, you know, he was said, you know, he had directed all these other indie films, including one with Chris Pine. And he basically got that awful, you know, Mummy remake taken over by Tom Cruise. So, you know, he still had to put his name on it at the end of the day, even though, you know, he got overridden by the own star. So I think he's, you know, he and Gene Roddenberry's son, uh, you know, have both just kind of said, hey, we're just going to just – Star Trek is once again going to get oversaturated, but this time we're going to just make it to be, make sure they're even more and more different. So if you don't like this, you can at least appreciate this other one. You know, if you don't like Picard, you can watch Discovery. If you don't like Discovery, you can watch Lower Decks. If you don't like that, you can watch Prodigy. You
4: know. Yeah, there there are a lot of choices now. They're all pretty different.
3: (laughs) Pretty ballsy to say you hate all of these because I mean, (laughs) when they've even brought back some of the same cast and crew, you you got to wonder how arrogant some of these fans are to just not like any of these
4: so i mean a lot of fans they kind of just want Trek the way it used to be and that's you know like we talked about earlier that's kind of just what they want they want trek to be what it was in the 80s 90s uh which is just simple short moral plays (laughs) but you know the times have changed the issues have become more complex here in 2022 so
3: i mean movies aren't even made the same way so it's like
4: exactly everything's changed yeah you can't you can't make a movie in the sixties the way it was made in the sixties anymore because we're not living in the sixties. So uh, you know, again, the Star Trek purists want their own thing and they want it to be what in their mind is this virginal vision of, of Star Trek. Star Trek is the monolith to them, but mm-hmm. I, I think you know, Star Trek has always been about the future, looking forward to the future, and also still at the end of the day, let's get real here, it's a product. It's a product uh, as as it is it's to say a
3: progressive product and it it should do more than just make you feel good. You should also I mean I, I take it you've seen the documentary that talked about how Yahura actress Michelle Nichols was a big icon of NASA even helping fund some of their projects, you know? Yep. So it's just like uh without any kind of positivity or inspiration, it's already not Star Trek. So it, it is kind of complex because we can say these aren't really track movies, but at the same time they're a different kind of popcorn all the same, you know, that you're not getting what you get from, like, some of these other more, you know, better known, more popular, or even forgettable blockbusters. With these, you're pretty much just – it's a giant roller coaster ride from beginning to end, and I'd even just probably use the Captain Power comparison where it's, like, you know, that was produced by a theme park production company. And it's like, this is kind of what it is. It wants to be a theme park attraction. <laughs>
4: That's a good way to put it. I mean, I think we can say the same thing for another Star franchise, too. Star Wars is kind of the same thing. It's it's very self-aware that it's hooked, and I think sometimes the fans kind of forget that it's a product, too. Now, don't get me wrong. They have every reason to not like something. That's totally their prerogative, and, uh, you know, I'm not picking fights over that. I, I feel like I have the unpopular Star Trek opinion here, <laughs> but... Um, it seems you know, like it's hard to, to state
3: any opinion without everyone just, like, they got this prejudged concept, and, I mean, I was even talking with Keith when we did our episodes. There's some people who still want to go by the uh, odd number rule. I'm like, it still doesn't <laughs> add up. That doesn't add up regardless of whether you consider Galaxy Quest as canon. I mean, because people like Star Trek free at the time and it's like, come on, you know. <laughs> just, when we get to beyond. So I was in the theater. I saw all these in the theater and this was the only one where we didn't have there weren't many people in the afternoon screening and both I started taking out my phone. (laughs) I just said, fuck it. It's just like, this is... This isn't even a Friday or Saturday morning movie. This is a Sunday night movie where you just want something going on, but you really aren't intrigued at all by the lazy plot. And so I kind of just knew I wasn't going to really dig it because... Unpopular opinion.
4: So I'll put it to you this way. I was watching all these films again, obviously, for this episode. And uh, I watched 2009 one first. I watched them all chronologically. Logically. Uh, so one, I think I took like one or two bathroom breaks because they're long movies. So you know, I, I did that. Long. Otherwise, easy to sit through. Uh, I got into Darkness, and that required a little bit more pausing. I got to Star Trek Beyond, and that's like two hours, right? Uh, for mm-hmm. me, it was about four or five hours because <laughs> I just I had a real hard time sitting around watching it. Uh, I had to take big breaks. It just was not too interesting for me, and. You know, I, I will say I actually like it more than I did the first time I saw it. Too. I, I think I really kind of hated it the first time I saw it. Watching it again now, many, many years later, I can kind of see what they're going for. And, and I think it also helped the fact that I did just binge the other two movies right before this. So I kind of watched it as, you know, I guess you could say a three-part story. And it kind of made a lot more sense watching everything back-to-back. Uh, and it was also nice that there's really no introductions this time. Like, we're just going right into the story. There's no time wasted here. There's no wasted motion. But uh, it... it you know, one of the criticisms you'll hear of a lot of TNG's Trek movies is how it felt like a longer episode. And that, you know, not necessarily a bad thing, but it's not really a great thing either. And Star Trek Beyond felt like a long episode that just didn't want to stop and just kept going and insisting on itself. And and then the Beastie Boys happened. So, yeah.
3: Yeah, definitely an unusual predicament where it's like they're having a lot of modern day music playing on here they've always been kind of obsessed with playing beastie boys in the promos and then here they are actually playing it in the movie um i didn't know what to expect from this uh, i guess my issue is don't don't get all these various giant actors like they got one guy ray they had the Sofia Batia gal from uh, under a bunch of you know heavy makeup and i i just found the whole thing just very forgettable i just uh, I find it watchable, forgettable, but it's just, I don't know, I just really am tuned out because like, but this one, I just had zero themes to comprehend or think about, and I know many tracks, guys who don't care for a lot of Transformers, Fast and Furious type stuff, and they like this a lot, just because for whatever reason, just the pop culture references and just other inside Easter eggs were enough for them, so I guess to each their own. I just—I just uh, I, I just can't even tell you what the plot is, and I know you know, others have explained it to me and I'm just like, but if I'm just not really all that into it, you know, and it, I don't comprehend it for the most part, I, I, I can't say it's an involving or engaging plot.
4: <laughs> I mean, we kind of go back to what we were saying about the villains and how like important they should or should not be. And this, in this case, uh, the villain is like super duper important to the entire progression of the film, but he is utterly forgettable, utterly useless, and just really... Not don't a even the character. What
3: alien race they are, you know?
4: <laughs> they made one up for him, basically. Uh, I mean, Idris Elba did what he did. He did the best he could, but oof, was he basically swimming upstream in this one? Um, he was just not a good character. No fault of his own again. He did the best job he could. But yeah, as far as like villains go, I mean, this is the movie now that actually. Uh, we could even compare it to Star Trek 3 maybe a little bit because Krug was so super important in that one. He said his first
3: nemesis, even though, you know, that was made right his... But At least be amused by track five in a cheesy way, but at the same time, yeah, it's not a perfect movie and nemesis, you know, it might work as, you know, a data movie, but I'm just so annoyed by the Picard clone subplots and the unnecessary matrix, you know, like edits to where that's kind of why it it lost some of its fan base. And it also just came out in a year, which was already oversaturated with other, you know, 2002 blockbusters. So yeah, with this one, I kind of felt much of the same, where it's just like it's just so much fed to you right up front. It's like eating again, you know, fast food and then just feeling like after all was said and done, it was still a pretty forgettable fast food.
4: <laughs> I think it's a great comparison to make with Nemesis, in fact, because that's kind of what I thought of when uh, we have the stupid motorcycle scene towards the climax of the film. Yeah. With- pine on the motorcycle I'm like oh good it's like nemesis when they got out the uh, little jeeps or whatever they had the little quads Mm -hmm. Uh, because I hate that scene (laughs) it didn't belong then it doesn't belong now Um, and you
3: watch it on TV and every time it's just like just killing time here guys you know we're kind of we're, we're already 20 minutes into this and we've had the wedding reception and everything and we need to actually know what the hell is going on here you know he kept us in the dark for too long and you lost half the audience and it's like it feels like that was just you know like you say with nemesis that felt like that was there to just wake everyone up but all it did is just add more confusion for those who really were intrigued and yeah with this it's like doing a tribute to that and at the same time it's just frustrating you because it's like can we get off the damn planet already and just you know stop whoever you know star trek 6 style from being assassinated in starfleet you know it's yeah. taking way too long so it's like there's a lot going on but absolutely none of it is memorable yeah and i know some people who do swear by this one and I, I i don't get it but it's like the only one i just cannot uh like i have even forced myself to try and come back and watch it and i can't do it i literally cannot do it there's just some movies that are impenetrable the most I can give this one, you know, like the first two I can give a three out of five because they're just worth seeing. Pros and cons and all. And this one, is there's so many cons to where it just feels like such an empty movie. And like you say, the idea is explored and the camera work is great, but it's just, like, in in fact, this time you really don't even see any outer space battles. It's all them stranded on a planet, but I mean...
4: Well, we we actually get two space battle kind of things, but that's how forgettable they are, as you forgot about them happening even. <laughs>
3: yeah, so yeah, I, I get that there's a bunch of drones and everything that attack them and <laughs> them dividing the planet. But yeah, when you're just reminded of other movies, that's just how unengaged I am. I it, It's exactly what issue I had with some of the other Star Wars movies where it's like, okay, I like Rogue One's homages and I didn't like the homages in the other ones. So it's like, Uh, I thought it worked in The Mandalorian, for instance, just some of the shots by shots because that was just like, it it felt complimentary. It felt like an add-on because it already had the stuff so they were free to do, it had the other stories down to a T so they were free to do what they want and add their own, you know, love letter. And at this point, this, you know, you had people who didn't, you know, who aren't concerned with really any kind of story or coherence. They're just kind of, they just want to just, have a reason to basically let the actors do whatever the hell they want. Some of it feels ad libbed, and other stuff just feels like it's just there to, again, just get to the next scene. And when you get that too workmanlike or that mechanical, I again, and my, my I, even if I didn't have a phone, my brain would just be else elsewhere. You know, I don't go to sleep during movies. I, I, my brain just wanders. <laughs> I just <laughs> become disengaged, just like. When any of us see like an award winning movie that's, you know, dominated the Oscars, and then lo and behold, we see it and we're just unimpressed. And we're like, what was the fuss all about? Why did everyone want to bid on this as best picture or what have you? And that's kind of where I was with that, where it's like, well, it's watchable. But again, I just. <laughs>
4: there's a lot of better things. There's a lot of better ways you could spend two hours on watching Star Trek Beyond.
3: Totally. And. You know, eventually, if you're just waiting for a movie to end, you know, that's also not a good thing. And I I really do try to be considerate. Like, there's plenty of movies I don't care for, but if I find it watchable or something in it that I can recommend to other people who I think will like it, I'm still going to give it a free or three and a half out of five, you know. I, you got to be fair. And this one, I struggle to even give it a free. And it's like, yeah, no, pass, 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 pass. Just <laughs> This is Monopoly, but you do not pass go, you do not collect $100.
4: (laughs) Yeah, no, this is I would watch it, is because I had to do this podcast, and I will never watch it again if I have my way. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
3: Uh, It can be a race for a time. This is the alternate mirror universe you don't need to go to.
4: (laughs) But I am happy I did get to revisit Into Darkness and the original one again, because those, I think, uh, I feel like they hold up better now, because like I said, like, last time I saw these, I wasn't really as into Star Trek as I am today, and watching them now as the fan, too, it's like, I can appreciate the fan service more, of course. That's more helpful. But um, I, I think I just have more of an appreciation for them as a whole. And, and I feel like they were all, with the exception of Beyond, uh, they were all fairly respectful of the source material.
3: Totally. Or at least just feeling free to do whatever they wanted, even though, you know, some of the people involved were fans and others weren't. Is like You at least knew what they wanted to do, to do which was be just a summer blockbuster which is what the original movies were basically, you know.
4: That's all they were really. They they were basically there because Star Wars did really well in the theater and uh they, Star Trek wanted some of that sweet sweet money too.
3: Mhm. I got to say the visual effects in all of them are pretty good. Uh it's interesting how I've been really disappointed by some of Industrial Light and Magic's more recent effects. They come a long way, and there are times where I'm like, I would have never known it was by them. That just looks like such forced computer graphics, whoever was doing it. And these, I I definitely don't think they skim out on them at all. I think they do, especially considering the fact that they abandoned the whole doing model work and everything is all digital models. Yeah, a lot cheaper that way. A lot cheaper, but I mean, so much detail on those spaceships.
4: and. I'll always prefer physical models over the CGI stuff, but... I mean, it still looked pretty good. And I, mean, I think here's like kind of the controversial question. Did you actually like how the Enterprise looked?
3: You know, I didn't even think about that because, I mean, it is... Basically, it just kind of... It feels like it goes with the rest of the sets. I'm definitely impressed by the film sets because um, basically, you know, you got a lot of silver and then you got a little bit of red glowing and then the only you know real thing that connects it to anything track related is just the you know classic series you know door opening sound effect and that's it you know you don't get any of the other you know self destruct sounds or any of that you know so it's, it's
4: i mean there were there were surprisingly a lot more background noises that i recognize now that i that i didn't remember really back then cuz i just wasn't paying attention to it but i mean they I, they were there was a lot more easter eggs i guess there i don't really didn't want to call them easter eggs but there was a lot more uh following the guidelines if you will of what the Star Trek universe should sound and look like right. there's definitely more of it with the exception of that lens flare because of oh, that lens flare
3: Oh, yeah so i'm it's kind of how i was like i've come to like the other free spin-offs in their own right and i keep finding new stuff anytime i uh, i've been going through them more recently and it's like yeah they they all suffered from like the first two years kind of being chaotic on each of them uh, but uh, D Space Nine, I really dug how everyone's kind of more like uh, the Marines and aliens. They're all going around doing ship security and doing more, just kind of stranded on planets, kind of stuff. Voyager, I dug the uh, uh, the other, just kind of uh, Borg attacks and everything. And then it just got, you know, complaints because there were a lot of annoying holodeck scenes and uh, just. Uh, alternate timelines and you can only have so many mutinies on a ship before it just gets still and Enterprise's main other main issue is it also kind of came out around the same time as Nemesis and it just felt like it was trying to imitate Star Wars while using original series sound effects and unfortunately I really dug the last two years. I, so If we're going with any version of Enterprise, I definitely prefer that earlier uh, or even some moments of Discovery over these movies, but if you gotta just if you want Star Trek and you want summarize, definitely try out the first two.
4: Yeah, definitely worth revisiting those two, uh, whether you've seen them or not before. I mean, if you haven't seen them, definitely do see it. Just keep in mind that it's not the same Star Trek you grew up with. If you're unfamiliar with it, uh, and then avoid Star Trek Beyond, like it has COVID. <sighs>
3: and it said it better because i see so many defend it i'm like but this has everything you hate in a movie and yeah but uh it was so much fun i'm like but why was it fun i don't know like okay (laughs) like i I said but
4: overall it just cannot keep my attention and i i've I've, i know people really seem to like that one for some reason i just i still can't fathom why (laughs)
3: Uh, it's it's kind of like with every other post matrix movie it's funny what stuff is being teased now and some of those i still kind of like and there's others where it's like yeah well you hate it now but you liked it then and i could have told you just when i saw it it was pretty bad because <laughs> it was just monotone and story so it is kind of interesting what stuff just evolves over time and everyone just takes a while it's like you don't know if they like it just because they're with a bunch of friends and we're drunk you don't know if they even know <laughs> movie fandom is funny that way so where can we find track untold for those who don't you know track down anything track related on podcasts and follow your awesome interview style
4: well for folks who don't know much about track untold too, it's, it sounds like it might be super nerdy super trekkie but we're, we're a little bit more open-ended than that uh, and the show is very much about the entirety of a career of someone so whether it's a performer or a stunt performer a uh, graphic designer, an editor, VFX person. It's kind of about talking about their other projects, learning about the things that they do and how they get things done. So even if you're not like the super biggest Trek fan, you're probably going to still find a few guests that you enjoy and hear some stories you're going to like. So if you want to listen to the show, you can check it out on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Amazon Radio, pretty much anywhere where podcasts are available. And the show is also available in full video form over on my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com mm-hmm. slash nerdnewstoday and if you want to follow us on social media just look for trek untold at twitter instagram or facebook
3: yep and it's once again it's just so cool how you got that whole you're able to keep promoting uh track actress Alicia nafs you know nonprofit organization for the homeless it's like yeah you know everybody wins and, and you and thank
4: that. you for reminding me too if, if you don't mind i'd like to actually plug that too for folks please. who are please, who please. are uh the internet. Uh, Lisa Naff, you might remember her from her episode of TNG. She's also in Total Recall, a bunch of other things. She was a triple-breasted mutant from Total Recall. And uh, she runs a charity right now called Drive-By Do-Gooders. And it's really amazing. It's, it's a registered 401c. And what she's doing is going around the really, really horrible homeless parts of LA and handing out food, water, sanitary things. Uh, she's doing a lot of real serious work out there with you know no overhead whatsoever. So you can donate directly to her on her website, which is, I believe, uh, drivebydogooders.org. Yes. Uh, you can also check her out on Instagram and Twitter as well. And r- right now, she's actually doing a really special, cool thing. So, uh, if you donate thirty-five dollars or mer- more to her, uh let me start that one over. Uh, if you donate thirty-five dollars or more to her charity, uh, and let her know in the comments that you're interested and you'd like an autograph. Let her know what you want. If you want Star Trek, Total Recall, or anything else that she's done, say no and- elsewhere. <laughs>
3: <laughs> which I actually saw this, you know, around the same time I heard that interview and it was great. It's like, yeah, so it's cool to know that, you know, she's grateful for all these roles. And at the same time, you know, definitely another talent who just deserved such a bigger career than what, you know, uh, limited roles she was given. And, but how cool that she's known for just a few small guest spots in a cult movie.
4: <laughs> and she's done so much more since then. And yeah, like I said, you know, donate 35 bucks to the charity. She'll send you an autograph picture. Uh, you can't be that. And by, by the way, folks, it's also tax deductible, so you can't be that at all.
3: Right. And I mean, where else are you going to learn about someone who, again, just cares about everyday hardworking people who weren't as fortunate and who worked as an undercover journalist? <laughs> so.
4: Yeah, and her story is amazing. For folks who like are new to Trek Untold, I always point them at that episode because there is Trek talk, but there's so much more to it. And Alicia is one of those folks who really, like, she left Hollywood behind to... Basically, start a whole new career as a journalist, and that picked up in some crazy ways, too. Uh, because oh my god, she broke the Bill Cosby story, so <laughs> you know, right there's a lot of bones to pick on that episode. So, if you want to check out a show that, uh, if you're not like the super big Trek fan, the Alicia and Nath episode, which I think is somewhere in the 30s, that's definitely a good starting point to listen,
3: especially to hear her talk about dancing, you know.
4: <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that stuff, too. Yeah,
3: thank you ever so much for being on here, Matthew. It was really just cool to just kind of just sum up how this has a very complex kind of fandom to it. And uh, I think you broke the mold on, you know, everything can be enjoyed. You just got to know what mindset you want to be in before you dedicate time to these kinds of movies. So,
4: Very true. You know, the legacy of the Abrams films, it does continue to this day. It really changed how people look at Star Trek, their vision of Star Trek. And, you know, while Star Trek at the end of the day, its core has always been to be a little moral lesson in every 44 minute episode. uh, The Abrams films, didn't necessarily do that, but they did kind of change it and bring it into modern times and brought Star Trek back into relevance, so we we got to give some gratitude there for for those movies, and they're definitely worth watching, uh, especially through a modern lens. They still hold up, and uh, yeah, give them a shot.
3: If anything, it'll lead to just bigger and better Star Trek movies, and if we can get more Trek movies, I'm all for it. (laughs) (laughs)
4: Absolutely. I mean, I don't know if we're going to ever get a Star Trek four in the Abrams verse. I'm pretty sure we're never going to get that, but you know, we got these three and I'll I'll take them. They're pretty good. I'll I'll take them as is. Sure. All right.
3: you be safe out there.
4: Thank you so much for having me on the show. Appreciate it.
3: You owned it. Thank you.
1: We'll return after these messages.
3: Hey, feeling down, feeling low. As needed, and let the hosts, Lee Russell, Daniel Harper, Paul Romali, and the odd guest host cure what ails you.
1: Warning: May cause atrophy, African consumption, black fever, bone shave, chin puff, colic, cramp colic, dropsy of the brain, elephantitis, grocers' itch, jaundice, mania, miasma, mortification, palsy, pox disease, rheumatism, scurvy, St. Anthony's fire, summer complaint, and worm fit in some people. Consult a physician before listening.
2: Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Ah, necrophilia. It's a dead issue, man. Don't, Don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, crude. I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in it. Watching this film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything that kept little history stuff popping up, doll yeah, popping up at you. So I totally loved this film.
0: Hey, I know why you you know, couldn't see that. It's because your brains warped watching this shit at twelve years old.
2: Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was how be a did rough you one.
3: watch this shit at twelve?
2: Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Science.
3: Hey, everybody. I'm Corey, and I'm Zach. And we're the hosts of Podcasting After Dark, a cast dedicated to late-night horror and sci-fi of the '80s and '90s, often found on HBO and Cinemax. You know, the movies
2: your parents didn't want you watching as a kid. You can find us every other week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, and Stitcher. This is what you want. This is what you get. (laughs) It's time. Let's check out Q, baby.
0: Pair it with a couple of baby. We love your movies. We
2: love the bad ones too. So we watch them all and pass their lessons on to you. Oh yeah!
1: Banan banan
2: ban out! Banan banan
0: Everything I learned from movies helps to make life a little bit groovier. With the one last black hole, a gratuitous movies. It's time to get busy with your friend Steven and Izzy
1: at eilfm.podbean.com
2: We now continue with our program. Follow us on the web on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.